We're going to be looking at Luke 23, verses 1 through 12. And um, so why don't we go ahead and just read that, and we'll have it in our minds. And he says here in verse 1, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day Pilate and Herod were were made friends together for before they were at enmity between themselves. Father in heaven, we come now, Lord, uh, dependent upon you. We pray, Father, for your um, enlightening us in regards to your your word, Father, as we see Jesus uh, standing before these wicked men being falsely accused, knowing that, Lord, he, he submitted himself to this for our sakes, and for that we're, we're forever grateful. I pray now, Lord, as we look at these uh, individuals involved in the trial of Jesus, that, Father in heaven, we would take something away with us that would be edifying to us, uh, that, Father in heaven, would even equip, equip us even better uh, to serve you and, and to love you and to worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, um, I titled this lesson, The Touchstone. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But even if you, you know, just casually read through the Gospels, you can't be help, you can't help but be impressed in um, where all those individuals, all those folks who came into personal contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, they weren't touched in some way, whether or good or bad. They were. They were deeply affected in their in their being in his presence. Uh, with some, the, the the experience was a good one. It, it changed their life for the good forever. And for others, though, it uh, it revealed their character. It revealed what they were like. And it wasn't so much for their good that they came into personal contact with with Jesus. As an example. You remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and asked him, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after Jesus had spoken to the to this uh, young rich man, uh, what happened? Well, his heart was exposed, wasn't it? 
And um, it revealed that uh, he valued his riches more so than the, than the sake of his, of his eternal soul. soul. So he, he came into contact with Jesus, and, and this is what was revealed about him. Now, you probably are familiar with what a touchstone is. Um, in many places, in, especially in the Far East or the Middle East, um, those who deal with gold, they'll use uh, something called a touchstone, and it's usually a piece of dark slate or something like that. And what they'll do is they'll take the gold and they'll run it across this piece of dark slate and... Because of experience and uh, their trade, they can recognize the you know they can see the purity of the gold. They can tell whether the gold is alloyed or how you know how pure the gold is by the mark that it leaves on on the touchstone. And so the Lord is kind of like that. He's kind of like a touchstone. Uh, people who come in contact with his his character with his uh, perfect person, um, you know, he being the absolute perfect uh, person, he's, he's the standard, isn't he? And when their life is struck across the, his life, well, you can see the alloy, the alloy in their life. You can see the sin in their life. It just kind of exposes that. And so that's the way I want to approach this lesson. Uh, And in these next uh, 12 verses, we're going to see the characters of the religious leaders. We're going to see the character of Pontius Pilate. And we're going to see the character of Herod as they come in direct contact with the touchstone. And we're going to see some things that um, are going to be revealed about their character. And I also want to talk a little bit about the touchstone himself. I want to talk a little bit about about Jesus. So we're going to look at the religious leadership who has been spearheading this whole travesty of justice in the first place. We're going to look at Pontius Pilate, who of course represents Rome, and then Herod, who is the king over king over Palestine. So we're going to take a look at that. And I'm going to approach it, we're going to first look at the scenario, and then we're going to look at the reveal. So if you look here in verse 1 of Luke 23.1, we're going to look at the religious leadership and we're going to see the scenario. It says here in verse 1, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. So we're talking about the religious leadership. Uh, These men had already condemned Jesus to death um, uh, formally, having already condemned Jesus in their hearts previously. And uh, from the sources that I read, the Jews were forbidden by the Roman occupiers to carry out a capital sentence. And um, since Pilate would care nothing about the charge of blasphemy in which they charged Jesus with and in their minds was just cause to death, they knew that Paul, uh, they knew that Pontius Pilate, that wasn't going to be enough for Pontius Pilate to agree with them that Jesus was worthy of death. So, uh, so the, what they did is they trumped up some charges. Uh, furthermore, to give uh, force behind these charges, notice that they all came as, you, as a united body. All in you know, one body. The whole group of them showed up. Uh, I guess they were wanting to impress Pilate by their numbers. 
right? They wanted to impress Pilate by their numbers. So what these men attempted to do uh, was to induce Pilate by their numbers and by their false charges to execute Jesus without further need of examination. I think that's what their ploy was. Uh, kind of like passing a bill through Congress before reading it. That type of thing is what they were trying to do. So, in essence, the collective attitude of these men was, you know, we are the Sanhedrin. You know, we're the elite, the learned among the Jews. We're the educated. We're the religious. Uh, certainly by our show of solidarity, that should be enough to convince you that this man that we're bringing before you is, is worthy of death. So there's really no need, further need of you to examine him. You should just go ahead and condemn him based upon, you know, who we are and what we say. So these men came to Pontius Pilate and they continued on with their false accusations against Jesus. But now their accusations were tailored uh, more to appeal to Roman justice. Look here in verse 2. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, uh, saying that he himself is Christ the King. So, in essence, what they did was they laid upon Jesus the charges of citing rebellion, tax evasion, even insurrection against Caesar by claiming to be uh, the king of the Jews. Now, the word pervert means to turn aside from the right path. And that's what they were claiming that Jesus was doing with the nation of Israel. He's turning us from the wrong path into a wrong path. Of course, Jesus was not guilty of that charge, was he? Uh, He came preaching the good news of the kingdom. Uh, As an example of his preaching, all you have to do is read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And that pretty much tells you... You know, what Jesus was all about as far as the kingdom was concerned. Those weren't words of rebellion. Those weren't words of perversion. Those weren't words of insurrection. They were words of peace and righteous living and even submitting to authority. Even submitting to authority. And so again, that's a false charge. That's a false charge. It was a false accusation. If anybody was perverting the truth, it was the religious leadership. These men who tithed their mint and cumin had no qualms in in, um, bringing up this false witness against Jesus to see to his death. The second accusation was that of tax evasion. And we know from reading the word of God that that's not true either, right? Uh, we studied this back in Luke chapter 20, 20 through 25, where his enemies uh, came to him and they tried to trip him, up, trip him up about, you know, should we give taxes to Caesar? And what was his answer? It's found right here in verse 24 of Luke 20. He says, uh, show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? Uh, they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. So, no, he's not guilty of tax evasion. Not at all. Again, a perversion of what was true. And as far as his kingship is concerned, 
I've read through the Gospels, and I may be wrong. I may have missed it, but I don't think I read anywhere where Jesus himself declares to the people that I'm king, that I'm your king. In fact, I can remember where in John chapter 6, the people wanted to come and force Jesus to be king because he fed them, right? And in John 6.15 it says, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So again, that's, a, that's another false charge. That's another false charge. And when Pilate, when he would later examine Jesus and question him about, you know, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Um, Jesus' answers to Pilate was, well, yeah, but my kingdom is not here. This is, my kingdom is not here. John uh, chapter 18, verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews? But now is my kingdom not from hence. So that's a false accusation on the Jews' part. And Pilate saw in Jesus that, well, this man's no threat to Rome's interests. And um, so he was willing to release him. He was willing to let Jesus go because he didn't really see, as far as Rome was concerned, any just reason to condemn Jesus to death. So what was the reaction of these wicked men? What was the reaction of these wicked men? Well, we read it right here in Luke 23, 5. It says, And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout Jewry, beginning from Galilee, Galilee to this place. So they were getting really worked up. Really worked up. You ever notice that when someone is losing an argument, or they really don't have a good point to stand on uh, due to the facts, instead of mustering facts to back up their position, what do they do? They get loud, don't they? They try to shout you down. You don't know me. You don't know me. You know, they start to shout you down. They try to silence the truth by their shouting. They mention Galilee. They mention about Jesus causing all these problems beginning from Galilee. I think that's pretty smart on their part. Uh, when they mentioned Galilee, they already knew that Pilate had some dealings with the riffraff and deplorables of Galilee. In Luke 13.1, we read there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So they mentioned Galilee trying to get Pilate's on their side. They were very passionate. They were very passionate. In fact, they carried this passion on to when they stood before Herod. And we'll see that in just a minute. In Luke 23, 10, it says, And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. This was in front of Herod. Vehemently, fervently, violently accused him. They wanted this man dead. 
Proverbs 27.4 says, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy? Wicked people get angry when they're confronted with the truth. Instead of responding to the truth as a sane person would, they, they just respond in anger. They just get crazy. Proverbs 12.16, A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covereth shame. Sadly, when lawlessness reigns, it's the passionate, it's the violent, it's the angry ones that are heard. And the prudent ones are ignored. The hatred of these men had that these men had for the Lord Jesus Christ just worked itself up into a frenzy. Just worked itself. They knew they didn't have a good case. They knew they didn't have a good case. So what is the reveal? What is the reveal? When these men were struck across the touchstone of Christ, what is the reveal? Well, Psalm 62.4 says, They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. You know, this religious body, instead of being the guardians of the law and justice, they were no better than vindictive creatures. They were hostile against the truth. Like Hayab of old, you know, who accused Elijah of being a troublemaker. That's what they were saying about Jesus. He, he's a troublemaker. He's causing trouble. Jesus wasn't causing trouble to the nation, was he? Who was it that Jesus was causing trouble for? The religious leaders. That's who Jesus was causing trouble for. You see, Jesus was never a threat to the people or to the nation. He was a threat to their corrupt institution that they had created for themselves. John eleven forty seven through 48 says, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees of the council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. They knew he did miracles. Verse 48, they said, If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and the nation. That's what they were concerned about. That's what they were concerned about. Their place. Their place. Their place of authority over the people. Like the good shepherd, the teachings of Jesus was leading the people to the green pastures and still waters of truth. And he was brushing aside the heavy burdens of legalism and the emptiness and spiritlessness of their ceremonies. He was calling them back to God, is what he was doing. And the Jews and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders they were opposed they were opposed to this because they had built this institution based upon not on the word of god but what 
the traditions of men. They had created for themselves a very good little institution. An institution that they were profiting from. And Jesus' life lived before the people and his words spoken before the people. That was a rebuke to this system and to these religious leaders. His life and his words stood out in stark contrast to the corruption that the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders were practicing in, in what they were. They were fleecing the flock rather than feeding and caring for the flock. Isaiah 56, 11, he, he spoke about the shepherds in his day and prophesied about the shepherds in Jesus' day and even speaks to the, to the shepherds in our own day. He said in Isaiah 56, 11, Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his quarter. That's what these false shepherds were doing in Jesus' day. And we have them doing it in our day as well. These false shepherds in Jesus' day held the people in contempt. Back in John chapter 7 and verse 48, when they asked the folks, why didn't you arrest Jesus when you told you to? And they said, well, we never heard a man speak like this, and the people think he's a prophet. Well, this is what their answer was. They said in John 7, 48, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? What were they doing just then? They were setting themselves up as the standard. Right? Kind of like what modern scholarship today says. Um, No, the KJV is not God's book for the English-speaking people. Let us tell you what it is. They don't even know. They don't even know. He says, um, Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. They held the people in contempt. Jesus' life, his whole life, was in opposition to their attitude. Jesus touched a leper. These men would have nothing to do with lepers. Jesus forgave a woman who came in and washed his feet with her tears and dried his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee did nothing but condemn Jesus and the woman. His whole life was a was in opposition to the whole order of life that these men had created. So therefore he exposed the alloy in their character. This is what made them hate him. This is what made them hate him. John, uh, Jeremiah 50 verse 6 my people have been lost sheep their shepherds have caused them to go astray they have turned them away on the mountains they have gone from mountains to hill they have forgotten their resting place you remember what Jesus said to the people come on to, come on to me all ye who are heavy laden my burden is light or my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light 
He was offering them rest. He was offering them rest. I mean, even Pilate could see the motive behind these men. Pilate said in Matthew 27, 18, for he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Jesus was making them look bad. They couldn't have that. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Jesus at one time compared these men to what? Why did sepulchers full of dead men's bones decaying into dust? Rotting away. Envy. Um, Envy stems from covetous pride. Pride seeks its own self-interest. Covetousness seeks to fulfill that self-interest. When that self-interest is frustrated, then comes envy. Envy is the result of frustrated pride not fulfilling its self-interest. And when this happens, they become violent toward that which is preventing them to obtain what it is that they, their pride wants them to have. These men, being applied to the touchstone that Jesus was, revealed that they were like their father, the devil. You know, in their accusation of blasphemy and that Jesus declared himself as the son of God... That's no different than the devil in heaven. When he couldn't stand that God was sitting on the throne and I should be there on that throne. They were guilty of the same thing. Because later on, what what is it they they were going to say about the Son of... We will not have this man rule over us. Because we're the ones that are in charge. Just like the devil. Just like the devil. Evil people in power feel threatened when they fear they're losing their power over the people. And there's two ways that they deal with this threat. And we've seen it in our own time. They'll either demonize the threat, making it appear to be evil. And if that fails, then they seek to destroy the threat. And that's exactly what these men were doing. Then we come to Pontius Pilate. And the scenario with Pontius Pilate, right here in verse 4, then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. History reveals that this man, Pontius Pilate, was uh, an intensely cruel man. And he hated the Jews. He made no bones about it. He hated the Jews. He hated the fact that he was sent to Palestine to govern these troublesome Jews. He only lasted six years. He only lasted six years as governor over Palestine. And during those six years, he was... He, he often acted rashly, just like in Luke 13.1 when he, he killed those folks and mingled their blood with the sacrifice. And because of his hatred for the Jews and his rash handling of the Jews, of course, he became an object of hatred for the Jews. 
The Jews couldn't stand him. But Pilate did, you know, have something about him. He, he was a fairly decent judge of character. The Pharisees weren't putting anything over Pilate. He's been around the block. He was a military leader. He was a political leader. You know, he's, he's, he's been around the block. And by his past dealings with this united body of Jewish leadership, he knew these men were operating from ulterior motives. He understood that. He knew how to play the game. He knew how to play the game. And he quickly summed the situation up. He, they knew, he knew why these men were delivering Jesus before him. They were envious of Jesus' popularity among the people. He knew that these men perceived Jesus as some sort of threat to them. And here's the thing with Pilate. Not only were these religious leaders trying to bring trouble down on Jesus' head, but more important to Pilate was that these religious leaders were trying to bring trouble down on his head. That's why he didn't want anything to do with this. So when he heard that Jesus came from Galilee, what did he do? Aha! Here's a way I can get out from underneath this. Send him off to Herod. If he's a Galilean, then let Herod deal with it. Let Herod deal with it. So what is the reveal? Well, the first thing that we see as Pilate is struck against the touchstone of of Jesus is that he's indifferent. He's indifferent to Jesus. He probably knew something about Jesus. You know, he was the governor of Palestine. He would know about these things. And Jesus, he didn't make any secret about what was going on. So he knew about Jesus. And when he had this contact with Jesus, he, he came quickly to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't worthy of death as, as these men were crying out for. He knew he, he knew he wasn't worthy of death. Therefore, he was indifferent towards Jesus. He was indifferent towards Jesus. That's not unlike a lot of folks today who hear about Jesus. You know, they admit, yeah, Jesus, he was a good man, and yeah, he probably said some good things, but that's as far as they'll carry it. They're indifferent. They're indifferent toward Jesus, they're indifferent towards the gospel, and they simply don't want to be bothered by him. Have you ever run into anybody like that? Tried to share the gospel? I, I just don't want to be bothered with this. I just don't want to, I don't want to have to spend the time on this. Along with this indifference, there was a certain level of contempt from Pilate. He held these Jews in contempt, and because he held these Jews in contempt, therefore he held their cause in contempt. Right? He, he didn't want to listen to this case because he held, con- held contempt for these troublesome Jews. Here they come again. Here they come again. 2 Corinthians 6.3 says, Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. You see, many have, in, have an indifference towards the gospel, 
because they hold the, uh, the Christian in contempt. They hold the Christian in contempt. I think it was Mahatma Gandhi that said, you know, he would be, he would have become a Christian if it weren't for the Christians that he knew. You know, sometimes folks don't want to listen to the gospel is because they hold Christians in contempt. And quite frankly, a lot of the stuff that's going on in Christianity today, I can't hardly blame them. I really can't hardly blame them. Along with this indifference and this contempt, Pilate was a cynic. There was cynicism in his character. John 18.38, Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? Classic cynicism. What is truth? Pilate was a cynical man, and most cynical men and women are motivated by self-interest. And when you get that high in a political position, that's all you care about is your own self-interest. You don't care about the people. All you care about is yourself. And you become very cynical. Pilate was a cynical man. He was a kind of man who thought the worst of people. That's why he held these Jews in contempt. He, didn't, he had a hard time seeing any good in anyone. And that's what a cynical person usually is, is like. They, don't, they have a hard time seeing good in anyone or in anything. And sometimes people who are cynical, they consider that a, a strength. It's not a strength, it's a weakness. Because it blinds you. It blinds you to the truth. It blinds you to the truth. Pilate's indifference, his contempt, his self-serving cynicism, what did that do for him? It led him to act unjustly toward Jesus who was innocent. That's what it led to. That's what it led to. Proverbs 21.3 says, To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. The term justice is not so much the proceedings that happen in a court, but rather it's the exercising of one's strength and authority to support the weak, uh, to aid the disadvantaged, uh, to defend the oppressed. Pilate failed the Lord in all those counts. The term judgment, um, that's talking about making a righteous decision based upon a moral law and then exercising wisdom and discernment to bring about a just cause. Again, Pilate failed Jesus on this matter as well. And then one final thing about Pilate's character. He, um, He evaded, he he didn't want to have any responsibility. Evasion of responsibility. He wanted to push it off. He didn't want to deal with it. Let somebody else handle it. That's not a good place to be. Because what happened was Pilate got maneuvered into a corner... And because he refused to make the right decision, what happened? Yeah. He buckled. He gave in. 
He buckled and he gave in and he turned, he turned Jesus over to be crucified. He didn't want to make a judgment call, but he did, didn't he? No amount of washing his hands will ever clear Pilate of this act of injustice. And then we have Herod. Here we have the scenario in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Herod's jurisdiction was, was Galilee. Of course, that was the site of most of Jesus' ministry. In fact, all of the men except for Judas Iscariot were from Galilee, you know, that were his disciples. And Herod, he was quite a piece of work. I mean, this was a man who was totally given over to sensual pleasures. He was very cruel. He was cowardly. All three of those traits are seen in his dealings with John the Baptist when that little girl was dancing in front of him. You know, and he promised to give her half the kingdom. And what does she do? She asks for the head of John the Baptist. And he goes ahead and against his conscience goes ahead and has John's head lopped off now remember Herod was glad to hear John the Baptist it's what it says in Mark 6.20 for for Herod feared John he respected John knowing that he was a just man and a holy and observed him and when he heard him he did many things and heard him gladly so Herod you know he, he respected John And he did some good things motivated by what John said to him. It says here that Herod was glad to see Jesus. But was it for spiritual reasons he was glad to see Jesus? No. He looked at Jesus purely on entertainment value. He wanted to see Jesus to perform some miracle like a magician uh, does, uh, does their tricks, pulling a rabbit out of their hat. So Herod sought Jesus was glad to see Jesus purely on the level of entertainment nothing more you guys know where I'm headed with this don't you there's a lot of folks today they seek church and Jesus purely on the entertainment level they want to be entertained they come to church to be entertained. I invited a gal to come to our church. And she said, the preaching's great, but the, the music's lousy. And to me, the music's more important. And so she never came back. She never came back. There's no hunger for God's word, but there is a hunger for spiritual junk food. I once also once worked with a gal that asked me if I knew of any good preachers on the radio. That's way, way back. And I said, yeah. I said, on the way home, about the time we get off of work, J. Vernon McGee is on such and such station. You know? She said, okay, I'll check him out. So the next day I asked her, I said, what do you think of Mr. McGee? And she said, I didn't care too much for him. I said, Why? Because all he wanted to do was talk about the Bible. I thought that's what you wanted. 
No, I'm looking for somebody who's going to whip me up. I'm looking for somebody who's going to make me excited. I'm looking for somebody who's going to stir my spirit. Oh, you're looking for somebody to entertain you. That's what you're looking for. Somebody to give you that spiritual, emotional high. That's what a lot of people are looking for. That's what a lot of people are looking for. John 4.23 says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. A.W. Tozer once said, The church that can't worship must be entertained. And leaders who cannot lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment. That's what's going on, folks, in a lot of churches. What many today call worship is nothing short of entertainment that appeals to the carnal mind. Worship, absence of truth, is not true worship. Apparently, Jesus Jesus just stood there in silence. And so Herod began to ply him with questions. Verse 9, and he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Jesus responded to Herod in silence. As Herod kept asking these questions, Jesus simply stood there, didn't say a single word. All that Herod heard was religious leaders in the background. He's worthy of death. He's worthy of death. Of course, Herod being the man-child that he was, how does he respond to Jesus' silence? He mocks him. Verse 11, And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. So what is the reveal about Herod? What is the reveal about Herod? Titus 1.15 says, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Remember, Herod heard John gladly. He even did some good things because of what John said. But when it came push to shove, and this man was to prove himself to be a man, what did he do? He silenced his conscience and had John beheaded. That's what he did. That's what he did. He was sorry for what he did, but he went ahead and did it. He wasn't sorry enough to say, no, I'm not going to do that. He went ahead and did it. He stifled his conscience. He felt the, the twinge, but ignored it. He silenced it. And now he's standing before the Lord and silencing his conscience in regards to John. Now he stands before the Lord and you know what he hears? The silence of death. That's what he hears. That's what he hears. 
He was a shallow man who had given himself over to pleasures and entertainments, so much so that his conscience was suppressed and stifled and defiled and seared. And to further the hardening of his conscience, what does he do? He mocks Jesus. He makes fun of Jesus. He makes Jesus into a joke. Not unlike what we see in a lot of folks today. I know I've used this example before, but there's adult cartoons out there like Family Guy and Simpsons. You ever seen those shows and how they treat Jesus or God with utter contempt? They mock him. They mock him. Herod silencing his conscience concerning John the Baptist was met by silence from the Son of God. Be careful, folks. Conscience can be silenced by incessant disobedience. It is the conscience of the lost man that the Holy Spirit appeals to from the outside and to the saved man from the inside. Unfortunately, tragically, there's many people who tune out God's Spirit so much that with each time they do so, (laughs) they become hard of hearing in their heart. They become hard of hearing in their heart until one day, all that's heard is the silence of a deaf or deaf conscience. That's a terrible place to be. That's where Herod was. That's where Herod was. Now, what about the touchstone? All this time, the Lord Jesus Christ was in the center of this travesty of justice. And yet, he was the only one that really remained in control. Right? He was the only one who maintained his composure in the midst of all this immoral insanity. To the religious leadership, he remained silent concerning their false charges against him before Pilate. He'd already said his last word to them back there in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, and I talked a little bit about that. When he said to the religious leadership, he said, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. What he was telling this religious leadership was this. Okay, guys, this is your hour. But be it understood, from this point on, you're dealing with the Son of Man who will one day judge you. You see, their opportunity had passed. They had made their position very clear. They were locked into their choice. And though for now they may appear to be in charge in reality, they were the ones who were being judged. And they were the ones who were found wanting. And one day they would be the ones who would stand at the great white throne and be judged by the Son of Man. Pontius Pilate, we'll learn a little bit more about him 
in our next lesson. I think the Lord endeavored to reach this man with the truth. I think he tried to testify to this man about the truth. But like um, the religious leadership, Pilate also missed his opportunity. He also missed his opportunity. In the end, what did Pilate do? Well, Pilate sacrificed truth on the altar of cynical self-interest. That's what he did. And then Herod, well, this man was well-versed in traditions. He heard the preaching of John the Baptist. He was very familiar with the religion of the Jews. And his interest in Jesus was only curiosity. Very shallow. Very, very shallow. And because he had hardened his conscience, when he came face to face with the Son of God, all he received was silence. All he received was silence. I would marked earlier in the lesson that there are people in the world who will make you out to be what, you, what they need you to be. If they need you to, 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 to be wrong or appear, appear evil, uh, then they're going to twist the facts to make you appear that way. That's just the way they work. Well, they're the other side of the coin. And I hope I'm not misunderstood when I'm getting ready to say what I'm saying, but Jesus will be to us according to what we are to him. Jesus will be to us what we are according to him. When someone approached Jesus with sincerity, seeking truth, coming to him by faith, seeking from him help and aid, what was Jesus' response to them? Favorably, graciously. He taught them. He healed them. He met their need. Yeah, exactly. But those who came to Jesus with insincerity or subterfuge or to attack him, how did, he, how did he respond to them? He rebuked them with the truth. He put them in their place, didn't he? That's what I mean, that Jesus will be to us according to what we are to him. Mark 4.24 says, this is Jesus speaking, He says, take heed what you hear, with what message ye meet, it shall be measured to you, and unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that hath to him shall be given, and he that hath not from him shall be taken even that which he hath. There's a spiritual principle in our relationship with the Lord, a principle that Herod and Pilate and the religious leaders violated. In effect, what Jesus is saying here is... I will continue to treat you as my disciples if you come to me honestly and sincerely uh, seeking truth. If you treat me as who I really am, your Lord, your Master. You come to me with that hard attitude, right? And you will receive blessing. You will receive blessing. 
But if you do not heed my word, if you do not seek the truth, if you do not obey me, if you do not want to come to me for enlightenment, there's really not much I can do. And that which I have given you, you'll lose it. You'll lose it. You know, yesterday we had a discipleship meeting. And we talked about the cost of discipleship. And I love the tact that we took. It wasn't so much the one being discipled, the cost that we talked about. But it was the cost of those who were discipling. The cost that's on us. The responsibility that we have. That's what he's saying here. We've got a responsibility. Do we look at Jesus as our master and our Lord? Do we treat him that way? Do we approach him that way? Hebrews 3, 7 says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. You see, the, the religious leadership, they hardened their hearts. And what did they leave behind? The alloy of vindictiveness. The alloy of murder. The alloy of hatred. Pilate. He was evasive. Indecisive. Weak. Herod. Contempt due to a hardened conscience. Shallow. These men were all struck across the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect touchstone, and they were all fallen short of the mark. And so will all who come short of the mark who do not receive Christ as their Savior. You know, I thought about closing, you know, what mark are you going to leave behind? But I changed my mind. I think that's implied. I think that's implied. Praise God that we are righteous in Christ Jesus. Because if not, the mark we leave behind is not going to be a good one. Is it? So praise God for his grace. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. We pray, Lord, you would bless it to our to our hearts, Father, that we'd um, contemplate your word and consider our our attitude, our approach to you. I pray, Father, that it's a reverent one, a respectful one. I pray that we look to you not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord, our Master, our Guide, our Teacher. May we approach you with fear and reverence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.